I'm delighted to say Nick and Penny Sharp are joining us this morning. Uh, Nick is uh, the pastor that leads Grace Church, uh, not very far away actually, very dear friends of John and Debbie. Nick has just passed his motorbike test, so I think they're going to become even closer friends with, with John over that. Um, but let's give Nick a really warm welcome. He's going to share with us this morning. <laughs> Thank you. Nick, I'll just pray with you before we start. Please do. Yes, thank you so much. Lord, I just thank you for, for Nick and for Penny. Thank you for Grace Church. Thank you for the part of the body that they are in this city. Lord, and I pray this morning that you would um, give us the words that he speaks, Lord. I pray that our hearts would be open to receive yes. them. Lord, I pray that our ears would be attentive. Lord, would you put power on this message for us this morning? Lord, and bless them both for all that they do and all that they are in this city. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Um, I imagine with an introduction like that, you know, Nick's just passed his motorcycle test. You're expecting some young guy to <laughs> jump up on the uh, platform. I was a little overambitious with this. I'm not quite as tall as I thought I was. Um, but uh, no, no, look, it is the midlife crisis. And uh, there's no point pretending other. Actually, I, I prefer to call it the midlife flourish. Um, it's a uh, long-standing dream of mine to own a particular motorcycle. I shan't bore you with the details, don't worry. And I won't weave it into everything that I say by way of illustration, or at least I'll try not to, though I'm somewhat obsessed with it at the moment. Um, but it's a long-standing uh, uh, dream. And uh, so uh, I know John was delighted and somewhat surprised when I said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm doing this. And um, uh, I don't know that we'll actually end up going out on runs together because uh, John's very experienced and uh, has a very different kind of bike and has a different kind of mindset. Um, I'm a little more cautious <laughs> than he is, so uh, we shall see. Well, it's a great joy to be with you. I'm going to be reading just a few verses from Paul's second letter to Timothy, and I shall start from, uh, from verse 1. Uh, chapter 1, even. That might be helpful. I'm reading from the ESV, so it might differ slightly from the words that come on the screen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I've noticed uh, that I've been thinking a lot about my past recently, and um, I, I wondered if this was just sort of self-indulgent 
introspection or yet another symptom of the midlife crisis, a hankering after the, the glory days of yesteryear, the sort of the days of one's youth now long gone. I, I wondered if that was what it was. And, and uh, I was mowing, mowing the garden, as mid, middle-aged people do, I was mowing the lawn, uh, frightening the dogs one afternoon recently. And I, I felt God say, no, it, it's not about that, or at least it's not just about that. I mean, you know what God's like. He's very generous and kind. It's not just about that. He said, I'm wanting to remind you of some things. I'm wanting to remind you of some things that I've done in your past in order to prepare you for what I'm about to take you into. You're, you're coming to a point of transition in your own life and ministry and the life of Grace Church. And I want to make you fully aware of who you are, what I've been doing in you. Because that's essential for me to take you forward. And as I thought about that, I, uh, and have been living with it the last month or two, I thought, well, this, I'll share with you some of the insights that have helped me. Because you, as a church, are in some ways transitioning into a new phase with all that's happening with John and Debbie. And we're so thrilled uh, with the new developments with them, the taking on of uh, the vineyard movement in the UK. We will be here Penny and I, on the uh, 19th of September, rooting for them and cheering them on as their uh, commission for that work. And uh, it seems that the only people that were surprised at that development were John and Debbie themselves. Uh, it seemed to me that it was an obvious uh, choice. But I'm sure that as they are away, uh, seeing old friends and uh, visiting conferences and just having fun together, I'm sure they're doing a lot of what I'm going to talk about here this morning. And summertime can be a good time for reflection before going into not just a new term, a new season, but perhaps for you individually, even corporately, a whole new season in your life. I won't use a motorcycle illustration, but many of you are drivers. You know, your, your main attention is, should be forward through the windscreen. I hope that's not too great a revelation. But it behoves us as responsible road users to keep an eye on the mirror. You think, well, what's the point? I've been there. I've done that. I just want to get there. No, no. You, you need to have an understanding of where you've come from. And you, you know from your driving lessons, you know, mirror, signal, maneuver. And so at such points of going into a new phase, it behoves us just to, just to take a reflective glance back. And it helps us understand our identity, the journey that God's taking us on. And I found this, as I've matured, and I don't just mean chronologically, but in character and uh, in other ways, I've I found that I've got an even better understanding of some of the perplexities of my earlier life. Would you not find that so? Things at the time you feel totally confusing. You think, how did God let this happen? What have I done? I've really messed up my life. I don't know. Is this redeemable? Actually, when you look back, you think, do you know what? Now I can see what God was doing. Even, even sometimes where you think, actually, I don't think God planned that at all. I made a total mess. And yet the genius beyond the cosmos has woven my mess into the tapestry 
of his destiny for me. I don't know how he does it, but he does. So right at the outset, just to set this all in context, Paul says um, in verse 2, To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that's a nice way to start a letter, but it's not just a nice way to start a letter. Each word is packed with poignant theological content. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. He did it all for us. He intervened in our lives. When we were not able to reach to him, he came and got a hold of us. Christ identified with us in our humanity. He identified with us in our sin. He took it all on the cross. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead to show it is finished. He is vindicated. And if we trust in him, we can enter into new life with him. Grace. Mercy. Mercy is given to those who are undeserving and unable to help themselves, stuck, can't see a way through. God has mercy on you and draws you close to himself. I remember when I first met Penny, she'd been a Christian about 18 months. I was not a Christian, and uh, I, I found her life attractive. I found her attractive, still do. Uh, I found her life attractive and yet strangely irritating. I began to think, I wonder if I could live the Christian life. And I began to work out what would I have to do? Change my clothes, change my style, change my drugs. In fact, I have to give the drugs up. Ugh, I don't know how I'm going to manage without those things. And, and, and what, what adjustments would I have to make in order to be this Christian person? But the truth was I couldn't do any of it myself. I needed grace, I needed mercy. And those things, when we receive them, bring us into a place of peace. Peace is to do not just with an inner sense of calm and well-being, but peace is to do with reconciliation. First of all, peace with God. And then peace with those around us as he brings us into his people and we begin to lovingly advance the kingdom in a needy world. Grace, mercy, peace. You could say that's uh, grace for the worthless. Mercy for the helpless. Peace for the restless. And that's all available for each and every one of us here this morning. So as Paul sets this in context, he... um, He does a bit of remembering. I've lost count of how many times that word crops up in these few short verses. Uh, But he he identifies four major past influences that have shaped Timothy. There's like four glances in the rearview mirror that have shaped his life and brought him to this point as Timothy himself Paul is preparing him for a massive transition. Paul is in prison. It's at the end of his life. Up to this point, he's been the man. Timothy's followed in his slipstream. Now he's going to be passing the baton on. Timothy's going to have to stand alone a bit. Take some of the flack, some of the heat. 
Paul has every confidence in him. And he reminds him of what God has done. First of all, and I won't labor on these, these points, I just want to throw them out. And, and as I do, I, I feel this is one of those messages, I don't know where Paul will take us at the end, how we'll finish this time, but I do feel there's something here just instructive for us to perhaps take away and reflect on over the, the, the lovely sunny summer that we're almost certain to get. I can see the sun coming out even as I speak. First of all, he points to Timothy's family background. He says, uh, your sincere faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now in you. You know, uh, all good biographies start not with the, the subject, but their parents, possibly even their grandparents. They, they want to show the context, the background, that then produced this person who goes on to be the main subject of the book. Paul himself says, it refers to his, his backstory when he says, God whom I serve as I did my ancestors. He said, I'm part of a line here. Probably when Paul turned up in, uh, in Lystra, in the Roman province of Galatia, in the, what we would now know as uh, southern Turkey, and preached the gospel, you can read about that in Acts 14, it would seem that numbers of people came to know Jesus and formed a very, very kind of raw, primitive church. And it seems somehow that this three generations of a family came through. That's just glorious. There was some Jewish background, some preparation in the Old Testament scriptures, but each one, one by one, came to personal trusting faith in Jesus. They paved the way. I just want to say something, really, that, you know, sometimes we get very caught with a spectacular black and white testimony. Somebody with no Christian background spectacularly comes to Christ. And, uh, and I've often heard people who've had a, a Christian background or a God-fearing background saying, oh, I wish I, my testimony's boring. I wish I had a testimony like that. Listen, in that kind of worldly sense, my testimony was spectacular. I came to Christ drunk, under arrest, in a police cell. It's not the most salubrious of surroundings. That's when I cried out to God. I said, God, you've got to help me. There's no one else who can. And immediately was flooded with joy and hope. But that is no more spectacular, no more decisive, and no more precious than the little girl who prays with her mom, age four. In fact, I am covetous. <laughs> of the little girl who prayed with her mum age four and grew up in that kind of context and doesn't then have to unpick all the mess that I had accumulated in my 25, 26 years before I came to Christ. Each is a divine, decisive work of God. And uh, we must value Christian upbringing for children if, if we're fortunate enough to have that and not just hanker after what we might see as a spectacular. But Paul, in referring to Timothy's backstory, is not just talking about parents, family. 
is also kind of encapsulating with that the formative years of our lives. And with a retrospective glance in the mirror, we're able to look back and see how the sovereign Lord has even been at work in sometimes the most bizarre and seemingly unhelpful phases of our own personal backstory. And he's been using sometimes painful, sometimes shameful circumstances and habits and attitudes to shape who we are and then to use, utilize us effectively for the advance of his kingdom. My wife Penny was, um, her mother abandoned her at birth and uh, her father tried to rear her, then she was taken into care and she's in various care homes and foster homes. Her father died when she was young and was not a very positive influence to be uh, candid. And uh, she had a lonely and disorientated childhood. And yet God was at work in all of that. And when as a young woman she came to Christ, she discovered not only the power of having been adopted by a loving father, but also adopted by a loving father into a family. It just, I mean, it just was thrown into sharp relief because of her backstory. Am I communicating with you? Understand? There's nothing to be ashamed of or shy away from, but just to say, no, God was weaving a rich tapestry. My own story, my, I was brought up by mum and dad, but uh, I was an only child of two only children. So uh, Christmas celebrations were rather minimal. I mean, it made it cheaper on Christmas presents and what have you. But uh, I was actually, uh, I want you to feel sorry for me at this point. This is a, this is a preacher's device to get you on side. I was actually a very lonely child. Oh. Thank you. A little bit more uh, pathos. <laughs> I was, a, I was a very lonely child, but I look back now and I see how God used that to teach me to stand alone, to teach me to, to read, to use my imagination. I had to use my imagination. I didn't have any friends. I still don't, actually. <laughs> I noticed one of my very best friends, John Wright, he only invites me to preach when he's not going to be here, you know. Isn't, isn't. <laughs> Actually, I think that's probably a vote of confidence. God used, wove things into me. I'll spare you the details. I, I, I never had the advantages of going to uh, Bible school or being trained in seminary. You can probably tell. Uh, my formative years were spent in the parachute regiment. I did many things there that now I would be ashamed of. Many things that I was trained in that are of very little relevance my party trick of being able to fire a 7.62 millimeter general purpose machine gun from the shoulder and effectively, I found little use for such skills in ministry, though sometimes I have, anyway, we won't go there. For several years in the parachute regiment, God actually was shaping and teaching some valuable lessons. We, we were taught that our job, and you can tell how long ago this was, it was in the days of the Cold War, we were taught that we were there to hold back the Russian horde that was certainly going to 
overwhelm us before nuclear Armageddon, uh, but our job was to be dropped behind enemy lines, and we would always be outnumbered. We would always be uh, under-resourced. We would, uh, we would always be overwhelmed, but we were to fight as hard as we could and take as many with us as before we died. Now, there are some parallels with the Christian life. <laughs> It also taught me how to submit to authority in order to wield authority. Some very valuable lessons that are kingdom lessons. And by the time I became a Christian, brand new, just out, wow. I'd already got some foundations laid in me that have really served me. Through. I'm only able to see that from my advanced perspective. I wonder what lessons and shaping God has done in your formative years, through your particular unique family background that you might tend to gloss over or dismiss, but is very, very precious. That even if you didn't know Jesus then, God is able in his sovereignty to weave it all together. Something to think about. The second thing that Paul talks about here is what I will call spiritual Friends. So we thought about family, spiritual friends. Paul, just look at the way he speaks to Timothy. To Timothy, my beloved child. In fact, he goes further than that. 1 Corinthians, he says, through the gospel, I became your father. Presumably, he um, led him to Christ. And we know they were very close. Just look at the language of the New Testament. This is, this is not a, an institution. It's not an organization. This is family. You know, I long to see you. I remember your tears. That's how we're to be with one another. And God will put people around us that will befriend us, that will mentor us, that will have the courage and the love sometimes to say the tough things to us. That will be good for us. And possibly only years later will we appreciate the full extent of their help. You do need to be careful which friends you have, of course, but I'm looking at this purely from a positive view. Neither of my parents were Christians, although subsequently they did both come to the Lord, which is wonderful. But God spoke to me early on and said, I, through a prophetic word in a ministry time at another church, and said, I'm going to put many fathers around you. And, and, and over time, I, I, that wasn't terribly exciting. I don't want to hear about many fathers around me. I wanted to hear about how I was going to take the nations for Jesus and the great big ministry I was going to have because I was young and naive and full of myself. But I needed fathers around me. And uh, over time, I grew in an appetite to spend time with older men for you, if you're a lady, older women, perhaps, who I could learn from, who taught me, you know, the most valuable thing they did in the early years of my Christian life, is they taught me how to enjoy God. It's what we might call our devotional life. But they taught me how to connect with God, 
how to enjoy God. We, we would spend hours praying together, laughing together, talking about the scriptures together, sharing our dreams and our hopes and, and, and praying for one another. And at the time, I just thought, oh, this is an interesting distraction. And, uh, uh, but now I realize it was laying a foundation. As a young man in my 20s, I learned how to pursue God and to relax with God. And not just worry about, have I done my daily Bible readings? Important as that is. Or have I prayed through my list? As important as that can be. But how to really relate to God and and enjoy Him and receive from Him and and flow in the Holy Spirit. I learned that from fathers with two exceptions. Every one of those has now passed away. I've realized at my stage of life that I think about those men nearly every day. Nearly every day. And in fact, I do the same as they did with me with those that have now been entrusted to my care and I see them beginning to do the same thing with those in their care. I kind of want to put a double edge on this. For those of you that are still growing in faith, I I guess that's all of us. Seek out, look for mentors, people who are just that little bit ahead of you that just have that joy and peace and security in God. They may have a different personal style. They may be likely to be in a different stage of life, but to seek them out, say, could we just pray together? Could, could you show me, teach us to pray? The disciples did it with Jesus. He was glad to help them. But also for those of you that may feel You have something to offer. Be alert to how God might draw people around you. And don't just think that you're inputting that one life. You are almost certainly inputting generations beyond them that you may never see this side of his return. So family and formative years, spiritual friends, and then God. Verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you. I mean, it's impossible for us as Christians, especially given what I've just been saying, to kind of separate out the natural from the supernatural. The the Bible doesn't really, that's not a Bible worldview. It's it's very much a Western post-age of enlightenment worldview. All all of our lives is encompassed by God's grace and reach. But here there is something specific, some divine intervention in the individual's life, a gift from God in you. Let's stop and think about that. That's quite extraordinary. A gift from God, from the all-wise, all-knowing one who put the stars in place, he now puts a gift in you which is unique to you, which suits you, which fits you, which is not out of place with your backstory, which is totally um, meshes in with all of his dealings with you and everything that he has for you in the future. There is a gift from God in you. You might say, well, now what gift was that? Well, (laughs) the Bible is, um, I think, deliberately vague at this point. 
But it's irrelevant what that specific gift is. But there is something from God in you. He has a gift for you. He has gifts for you. He's put gifts in you. And that shapes who we are. It's not just shapes what we do. It shapes who we are. In Ephesians 4, Paul says of Christ, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Let's not focus on those ministry gifts. Here's the point, that the gift that the ascended Christ gives becomes personalized in us. Sometimes we, uh, we use a derogatory phrase of people that seem to be a bit full of themselves. We say, oh, he or she, they think they're God's gift. Well, the funny thing is, <laughs> we are. You are. You're God's gift. He's put a gift in you that is unique to you and totally fits you. It may not have been what you'd wanted or sought. It won't be the same as someone else. Comparisons are odious anyway and certainly don't work within the body of Christ. He has put a gift that is totally fitted to you and made you a gift to the world, to your family, to your brothers and sisters in the church. It's a beautiful thing. Well, that's it then, isn't it? Well, if God's done it, just let go and let God. I'm a gift. Nick said so. Do you remember that bloke? Nick, he said, I'm a gift. That's it. Well, not quite. There's a fourth and last thing. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear. Times of transition are times of change. Change means loss for someone, and that can be fearful. That can cause us to draw back, and be defensive. But there's no need because what God has done in us, the Spirit of God at work in us is totally consistent with trusting Him, believing Him, and keep moving forward. Paul likens the gift of God to a flame, a fire. And a fire that needs to be kept ablaze. It's not to say that Timothy's fire was dwindling, although it may have been, but rather the fire needs feeding and nurturing. So with everything that we're saying about grace, we're not saying, oh, it's grace just to let go then. Rather, it's grace that empowers us to keep going. It is a gift that is not to be neglected. Presumably, in other words, a gift to be used. A gift not to just kind of put on a shelf or wear as a, a laurel wreath. And here we see coming together in a beautiful way God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It's God's gift. Fan it into flame, Timothy. You, each one of you, has gifting from God. Well, come on, use it. 
Don't neglect it. Let's just put it on the shelf. Don't just, don't just sit back, wait for someone else to fill the gaps. No, no, you're a gift. So come on. It's vital. We are all poverty-stricken if we don't serve one another with the way that God has uniquely fitted us. Paul captures this in his own testimony when he's, he's talking primarily about the resurrection, but he says this 1 Corinthians 15. It's not on the screen. I'll just read it to you. It says... Um, He's referring to how Jesus appeared to various apostles. And then he says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. See, he's well aware of his backstory. He's well aware of the shame of things that he's done. I've done things that I'm desperately ashamed about. And not all of them before I came to Christ. Quite possibly, you can identify with me personally. He said, I persecuted the church of God, but, don't you love those buts in the Bible? But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I didn't just let go and let God. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Oh, so who is it then? God or Paul? Well, he goes on. Uh, Though it was not I, (laughs) but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. It's just, you see, God's sovereignty, our responsibility, beautifully meshed together. That's the only, we have to, you can't have one without the other. They beautifully work together. And that's how we're to be. Paul had reached a point in his life where he was, if we put it in a colloquial phrase, He was comfortable in his own skin. I am what I am by the grace of God. And God's grace energizes me and empowers me to work hard. There's a wonderful synergy in verse 6 in our passage. Just, Just look at that again. For this reason, I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame... So that's something that Timothy's got to do. The gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. God, through Paul to Timothy, then Timothy activates. There is a picture right there of the body of Christ beautifully at work together. Fascinating. Dwell on these things. It puts a whole different perspective from when we have ministry times, doesn't it? We lay hands on one another. We pray. What are we doing? Just a nice kind of blessing. Hey, sometimes, yeah, no harm in that. Sometimes things are really imparted. Sometimes something is happening. We've been worshiping here today. We've been saying some massive things to God And do you know what? He is here, and he does hear them, and he takes us seriously, sometimes more seriously than we, we, it would terrify us if we realized how seriously he takes us. So we come to pray and to lay hands on one another. Things happen. Things have happened to many of you in the past. You know God's touched you. You know God's imparted to you. Fan it into flame. Keep it alive. An appreciation 
of the backstory, this glance in the rearview mirror helps us understand who we are. It settles us and prepares us for the next phase. Had we read on, we would have read this. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We must keep pressing forward. You see, Paul is not in a midlife crisis, self-indulgent, sentimental period of retrospection. If we were to read on, we would find that he has an extraordinary vision of the future. And that's where he's taking Timothy. He goes on in uh, the very next chapter to uh, Timothy 2, 2, familiar words, that which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Sociologists tell us that it takes three generations to birth the people movement. There's four there. He goes on in chapter 4 to say, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his appearing. Paul's got his eyes firmly through the windscreen into the future. There's a day coming when he's returning. But glance in your rearview mirrors, remember who you are, see what God's done, and then go for it with all your heart and might. Maybe you wouldn't be able to say that you know Jesus yet. I, I do commend him to you. <laughs> he's absolutely wonderful. He's fascinating. He's the genius. He's full of truth. Sometimes the truth hurts. But he's full of grace and mercy. He can help you. He wants to help you. You're not here by accident. You're here because he's drawing you to himself. I, I encourage you as Paul comes and leaves us in a moment. Yield your heart to him. Let him take all the mess of your backstory and weave it into something beautiful for the future. He can do it. You might say, yeah, but you don't know me. No, I don't, but he does, and he's reaching out to you right now. You may be a believer, and you're still shy and hiding from things that have gone on in your past. Listen, there is grace and mercy and peace for you. He's able to weave it all together. I appeal to you to keep putting your trust in him. Let him do a wonderful work in you. He's doing a wonderful work in this church. He's doing a wonderful work in John and Debbie. They're coming to a point of maturity and convergence in their leadership and in their character and their gifting where it's all coming together in a beautiful way. It's good for this church, good for the vineyard movement, good for the church in the nation and beyond. And this church here, I know you'll play your part, tucked in with them, advancing with them. May God bless you richly.